The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, normally when we talk about the China-Africa relationship, we always put it in the framework, and it's not just us, I think it's universally, about the effect that China is having on Africa. Almost never do we talk about the reverse, about what impact is Africa having on China. And in fact, it's such an unusual topic in conversation that can you think of any time in the 10 years that you and I have been doing podcasts beyond the immigration story about Africans in in Guangzhou or even African students? Because again, that's not really changing China. I don't think we've actually had a topic about the, the reverse kind of impact. Can you think of any? No, no, not offhand. No, and it's funny because when the the topic for today's show about religion came up, it really struck me as like, wow, this is the first time. So think about it. There are hundreds of thousands of Chinese migrants who have made their way from China to Africa. We don't know a precise number. We've talked about this in previous shows that the numbers range from as much or from as few as 200, 300,000 all the way up to 2 million. Now, that number also includes... Uh, Chinese who have been there for generations as well. So we're mixing in people who are settled, second, third, fourth generation with immigrants. But let's kind of put it at a few hundred thousand. The China-Africa Research Initiative has it somewhere around 227, 230,000 Chinese migrants working, migrants uh, who are there. And what's interesting that's happening, particularly in places like East Africa, where there's been a surge in evangelical Christianity, that a lot of these Chinese migrant workers are going home with more than just, uh, you know, some trinkets that they bought at the market. They're going home with the new belief in God. And that is really, really interesting because it's having an effect in China. Now, when we bring up the conversation of religion in China, wow, things get very, very complicated. Let me just kind of map it out for you because it will be really important uh, for us to understand this in the broader conversation that we're going to have today with our guest. Religion in China is uh, state-controlled, as is everything here. So any kind of independent religious activity or church activity is forbidden by the Communist Party. Even the Catholic Church and Christian groups here are all sanctioned by the Communist Party and the Chinese government, and they are tightly controlled and monitored very, very closely. So when evangelical Christians come back from uh, Africa and other parts of the world— And they don't necessarily fit nicely into this state-run Catholicism or Christianity that is here in China. So that is a little bit of the situation here. There's somewhere around, we don't exactly know the exact numbers. Some surveys put the numbers of Christians in China at about 31 to 40 million. Other numbers put it as high as 80 or 90 million, which then puts it up as close to the number of Communist Party members. And so people, they, they jokingly say there's more Christians than communists. But if you think about 80 million Christians in a single country, we're now looking at one of the largest Christian countries in the world is China. 
which is remarkable in that sense. And a lot of people don't think of that, but everything in China is bigger. Kobus, let's now kind of look at it from your side of the world and talk about kind of the growth of evangelical Christianity, particularly in East Africa. And I think I'll put the disclaimer out there for you. This is not your field of expertise, but again, it is something that is very, very prevalent in the political debate, the social debate, and obviously in the religious discussions. Yes, definitely. I mean, religion is is a big and very complicated issue in Africa, um, and and Christianity is is growing very rapidly. I mean, it's 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 you know most African countries are, are have large Christian populations. You know, obviously, except for you know the Muslim parts of Africa, um, and especially in sub-Saharan Africa, you see not only the the growth of Christianity as a whole, but the 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 development of the kind of cross borders strains of different kinds of Christianity moving from country to country. So, for example, in South Africa, uh, over the last few years, last 10 years or so, we've seen really an explosion in the popularity of Nigerian Pentecostal churches. Um, and, you know, many Nigerian preachers, you know, the, you know they, have, they have that kind of um, system where where preachers sometimes become like celebrities. Um, and some of them have are celebrities here as well. Um, and, you know, if, if you, especially if you go to to downtown Johannesburg on a on a Saturday or on a Sunday, you frequently find these these churches with you know very large congregations, um, very very loud um, services, um, and so so it's it's over the last while we've not only seen you know you know, the entrenchment of, of Christianity and with it, um, you know, some certain forms of social conservatism in parts of Africa, but also the kind of cross-border traveling of different kinds of, of Christianity to other parts of Africa. Well, let's get some perspective on this. And uh, an interesting article crossed uh, earlier this year, How Africa is Converting China. China's Mass Investment in Africa is Having an Unintended Religious Consequence at Home is written by Dr. Christopher Rhodes, who's a lecturer in social sciences at Boston University's College of General Studies. Uh, Christopher looks at the role of identity in politics with a focus on religion, and one of his areas of concentration is East Africa. And we are thrilled to have uh, Christopher getting up early for us from Boston, Massachusetts, and we welcome you to the program. Oh, thank you very much, Eric, and thank you, Kobus, for having me. I've been looking forward for a very long time to join you. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Thank you very much, and we're happy to have you to talk about this this issue, because as I said at the top of the show, um, this is not something we've ever talked about. In fact, this is the first time that we've really looked at the idea of how Africa is influencing China. And you put it out there in, you wrote this for in Unheard, which is a web a UK website that's U-N-H-E-R-D, a little pun there, and we'll get to that pun later in the show, which I, it didn't catch me at first, but we'll explain it later in the show. Um, let's go right into your article, How Africa is Converting China. Why don't you just give us the broad overview of, of what your research found? Absolutely. And so in short, I found that in the midst of all this conversation that people have about the effects of China on Africa, which is what you mentioned is usually the topic of conversation, I noticed that no one had really talked about the reverse. It talks about the opposite. And for my own research, being concerned with issues of Christianity and politics within Africa and the agency of African churches in particular, I started to look at this and I thought maybe there was something there. And the more I looked at it, the more I found all of these stories and all of these anecdotes about Chinese nationals who have come to various countries in Africa as workers, as small business owners, as managers of 
various projects and whatnot. And many of them are being exposed for the first time to Christianity. And many, in many cases, this evangelical form of Christianity that's prevalent across the African continent. And an untold number of them are converting or becoming Christians in this foreign context for them. And now, as many of them, because of the end of contracts, because of fluctuations in the economy of these countries, many of them are returning to China and they're bringing back their faith. They're bringing back their Christianity with them. They're often bringing back spouses who have grown up Christian and who are used to practicing in this very exuberant, very free evangelical style. And I'm wondering, you know, what impact is that going to have both on Africa-Chinese relations and on China itself as well? And it's a really interesting dynamic where it's not only natural resources and these kind of things that Africa is exporting to China, but Africa is actually exporting Christianity and African Christianity to uh, the Chinese nation. And I think it's just a really fascinating story that not very many people have really noticed or talked about in any really kind of systematic way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you give us an idea about, about how these you know, these these migrants get into these churches in the first place. Um, so, you know, we interviewed um, other re researchers who focus on the lives of Chinese workers, especially uh, workers for big companies, um, where they frequently live in these these kind of gated compounds, um, you know, and, and frequently those compounds are, are, are gated to, to keep these workers safe. You know, there's this perception that there's all of these, these um, security problems and they need to essentially be under armed guard. Um, so they tend to not, not kind of freely wander around the city. Um, are, are they approached by proselytizers or representatives from churches to kind of, to, to pull them into the, the, their first meeting or do they happen to wander in there? Like how, how generally do they actually get exposed to these churches in the first place? Absolutely, that's a great question. And from what I've been able to discern so far, there's actually a variety of ways. And so, as you mentioned, depending on which country you're looking at and which type of enterprise, uh, Chinese workers are exposed to different levels uh, to local populations. But even those who are living on these compounds and whatnot, have some interaction uh, with their local counterparts um, in Africa, whether it's uh, shopping, whether it's working together on jobs, so on and so forth. And uh, an important part of the story, I think, is that in many of these countries, these are primarily young men who are coming in from China. And so the idea of finding romantic partners, so on and so forth, um, even wives in many occasions, is something that's very pressing on their mind. And in the context of these interactions, they're being exposed to Christianity. Um, in, in many countries in Eastern, Southern, Central Africa, you know, the vast majority of the population is Christian. And a very large percentage of that will be evangelical Christians who have this very keen, what they consider a calling on their lives to share the gospel, to share the, their faith with those who aren't familiar, who have never heard of it and whatnot. And these growing Chinese populations present a really great opportunity if you're an African evangelical, to invite someone to come to you to a church service or to a Bible study, or just to talk in everyday conversations about what Christianity is, what it means to be a believer, so on and so forth. And as uh, these populations of Chinese workers have grown and have established themselves over a period of time, we've seen African churches and groups becoming more intentional and more strategic. And so they're 
various churches in urban areas now that are offering services in Mandarin or in Cantonese once a week, for example, in order to attract and to maintain uh, curious Chinese visitors and whatnot. Uh, one colleague at a conference I was attending just uh, last week told me of an anecdote that he heard of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in Mozambique who were actually learning Mandarin so that they could go and visit uh, Chinese workers in Mozambique and preach to them the gospel in order to convert them. And so you see, it's a lot of these kind of everyday processes among individuals combined with a more concerted effort on the part of churches and Christian organizations that are combining to expose the Chinese workers to Christianity. It's interesting because it completely throws the whole China colonizing African narrative upside down. <laughs> because the whole nature of colonialism is that they were going to export their religion. You know, that's what colonialists do, imperialists do, is they impose their culture religion on others. And yet here we have foreigners in Africa who are, you know, being converted to the indigenous religion. So just that's, as you were saying that, that's what went through my mind, which is absolutely fascinating to think about. Let's get, I want to go into this communication issue because one of the major flashpoints in the China-Africa relationship across the continent at almost every level of society is the difficulty that people have communicating with one another. Uh, language, of course, being the big barrier, but culture also being another obstacle that people have to overcome. So now when you have this outreach from evangelicals to the Chinese community, and again, I just want to, when you say Chinese, I, if you can be a little bit more specific in who you're talking about, are these the workers on the on the projects, the people who are doing the manual labor? Are they project managers who have some level of education in English? Because I'm just trying to envision in my head what it's like for someone who doesn't speak English, who may not be familiar with Western culture, much less African culture, to find it interesting, appealing uh, to go to a church service in a religion and language that they that is all exotic and foreign to them. So I'm just, can you walk us through the mechanics of how this actually works based on your research? Absolutely. And uh, in my research, I found kind of at least two models or two different ways that we can think about this process. And so first, let's start from the point of view, if you're a Chinese worker, you've come to do mostly manual labor for a period of maybe two or three years or however long your contract may be. You speak little, if any, English or other kind of Western languages and whatnot. So for you, you're being exposed uh, to workers who, and to locals rather, in many cases, who are actually learning Mandarin or learning Cantonese in order to better outreach uh, to these workers, either because they're specifically doing it for the purpose of evangelical outreach, or in many cases, you have uh, Africans, particularly those in urban areas who are learning Mandarin uh, for other reasons, for in order to conduct business with their Chinese counterparts and whatnot, or because they've taken a class at a Chinese-sponsored Confucius Institute, uh, which are these institutes that China has actually been setting up around the world in order to facilitate business operations uh, with other countries. And so you have locals in Nairobi or Johannesburg or whatnot who actually speak Mandarin or Cantonese. And these churches in these areas where the language is spoken becomes become like an oasis uh, for a Chinese worker who may be having difficulty with the language, with the culture. And because these services offer some aspect of bilingual exposure, it's a good way for a worker who may be trying to learn English um, to go to a place where 
they can have that bilingual experience where they can be talked to in Cantonese or in Mandarin, but also pick up some English words, phrases, so on and so forth, and do so in a friendly environment, in an environment that's welcoming them, uh, often in the case where the larger urban environment may be much more ambivalent toward their presence. And so that's one version of the story. A second version of the story, uh, you're a Chinese business owner. You've maybe been in, say, Johannesburg for a number of years. You speak a fair amount of English. Uh, you're decently a, a culture to the basics of you know, the local culture and whatnot, but you want to develop connections uh, with the local community in order to pursue other business ties um, just to ingratiate yourself in the community. And so having access to a built-in network like the church is a really useful way to do that. And this is not to say that uh, for, say, business owners and whatnot, that their conversions or their experiences are not sincere, but they also appreciate the very practical benefits of being able to attach themselves to a very active social network, like the kind that you find in the church, and in particular in these evangelical churches, which have large national and often even international ties. And so these are kind of two of the main stories that you see here. Um, and if I could maybe even throw in a third one, uh, you've seen cases of uh, Chinese laborers who met uh, women uh, in the various cities and whatnot, have begun dating, and uh, through these romantic relationships have both learned uh, the local languages and also learned Christianity. And these relationships are increasingly becoming more long-term, leading into marriage. Uh, there have been a couple of really high-profile marriages between Chinese gentlemen and uh, African women, one in Nairobi, um, Kenya, one in Cameroon, that kind of made national and international headlines. And these are very literal marriages of two cultures. Um, and this process you're seeing increasingly happen as well. And so through all of these kind of different mechanisms, you see this melding and this cross-cultural exchange um, that's mutually beneficial for both sides. So once these people go back to China, um, do you have an, uh, a kind of rough idea of, of how the the expression of of this of this new religion then then proceeds once they're back? Do they do they tend to join kind of established Chinese churches or then underground versions of those churches, or do they uh, do they increase? Do they also gravitate to some of the African churches that are that are run by African expatriate communities in places like Guangzhou? Absolutely. And I think you see some of each of those. Um, of course, uh, China, in terms of religious practices, can sometimes be a bit of a black box in terms of the high-level restriction that's placed on religion there. And so it's always more difficult to get a full sense of what's happening on the ground in China than it is in Africa. Religion is much freer in practice, generally speaking. But my evidence, my research shows so far that you see some of each of those um, many of these converted Chinese Christians are joining the official churches. Um, China only allows five official religions, including two branches of Christianity, either Catholicism or basically a mainline version of Protestantism as official state churches. And so you see uh, many of these returning migrants joining one of those two official churches. But that's often insufficient because they very much don't match the style of worship and the freedom of worship that they're used to from their conversion experiences abroad in Africa. And so they're increasingly joining or forming these underground churches, which are technically illegal and are 
often the subjects of crackdowns by the government if they're discovered. Uh, You do have some as well, as you mentioned, that are practicing alongside African immigrants in these kind of African-led churches that you see um, in various parts of China and whatnot. Um, But you're often seeing uh, these Chinese Christians either join the official church or forming their own house churches um, where they meet in secret at various homes and practice the form of evangelical Christianity that they're used to. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. While that is happening, I think it should be noted that since 2012 and the ascension of Xi Jinping in particular to the presidency and now the permanent presidency, uh, there has been a very severe crackdown on those independent uh, home churches. And so that is a very risky endeavor for people to be taking, and particularly if they're practicing a form of religion that is far outside of the Chinese mainstream. Uh, the government doesn't like that. The government's a you know, objection to religion here, or actually I can even say the Communist Party, it's very important to make that distinction between the party and the government. They don't like any groups of any kind to form because that's how opposition kind of breeds itself. So this is not something unique to religion. They don't like groups, underground groups of any kind, uh, religion being, of course, just one part of that. And you wrote that this new dynamic is, in fact, creating a headache for the Communist Party. Um, any indication from what you're seeing and how the Communist Party is dealing with this? And again, you know, the story that you wrote is just filled with irony. So I talked about the colonialism irony, but the irony here that it's Confucius Institutes that are teaching Africans Chinese that are then using to convert Chinese workers who then come home and create a headache for the Chinese government is just get your mind around that. But it is very, very interesting. So I'm just wondering, in your research, did you come up with any uh, feedback with how or any response from the government and how they're dealing with this? Absolutely. And you're right to point out the irony. Um, There's just layers upon layers of it. And so you are correct that the Chinese Communist Party in particular has been wary for almost its entire rule in China of any form of underground or not state-sanctioned organization that could potentially rival it in terms of power, in terms of societal influence, including religion. And that's only stepped up under Xi Jinping. Uh, Xi Jinping is actually a very interesting figure. Uh, He's actually very intimately knowledgeable about religion. His father, for example, uh, was one of the main Communist Party officials in charge of the party's relationship with religious organizations. And so President Xi grew up in an environment of understanding religion. And he's actually done a little bit of a complicated strategy in China. It's not simply that uh, he's been increasing repression on religion, although he has done that, but he's also kind of drawn this line between what he considers to be more authentic or domestic Chinese religions, things like Taoism, even Buddhism and whatnot, Confucianism to a certain extent that have been promoted, which is why these Confucius Institutes are labeled as such on the one hand versus what Xi Jinping and other hardliners in the Communist Party considered to be foreign religions, so Christianity and Islam, which have been very heavily persecuted and regulated. And so far, the response to these returning Chinese Christians 
um, has not really changed the overall policy under President Xi of crackdowns on religion, on closing congregations, on arresting clergy and arresting members who are practicing illegally and whatnot. But what I suspect in the long run, as these returnees increase in number and increase in their fervor and in their desire to have a more authentic in their consideration, a religious experience, that it's going to put increasing pressure on the Chinese Communist Party to moderate its religious policies, and particularly its policies towards Christianity. Um, again, exact numbers are hard to come by, but we see this steady and, I think, increasing stream of converted Chinese Christians returning. And I think that's going to just increase pressure on the Communist Party to relax some of these restrictions and to allow uh, these individuals to practice in the ways that they feel are necessary, in the way that they feel they are called to by the religion. Which, of course, is an optimistic view of it, because the other flip side of that is that the government can just become even more strict. Right. That's absolutely an option as well. And that is definitely the option that has been taken so far. Um, there has been no immediate sign that Xi Jinping or anyone else in a position of authority is seriously considering relaxing these restrictions. But as China deals with these increasing returnees and as it integrates more and more with the rest of the world through things like the Belt and Road Initiative, there are going to be increased local and international pressures uh, to moderate this. If you're dealing with dozens of primarily Christian countries um, who now have these connections to Chinese Christians, uh, there's going to be increasing diplomatic and otherwise international pressure on the government. And the Chinese Communist Party has been particularly resistant to change from outside pressure, don't get me wrong. But if any change is going to happen, I see this process as being a big part of that. You know, one of the points you make in your article is that that an element of Christianity that the Chinese government will have to find a way of dealing with is this, this kind of you know, strong drive towards proselytizing and towards gathering new members into the church. You know, it's such a fundamental part of Christian thinking that 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 is kind of the main job. You know, kind of for for the faithful is to to gather more faithful. Um, and so, so you you argue that in that in some cases it might actually result in in sending them abroad. Absolutely, I think that's I think that's another option. Um, you know, it's almost kind of the pilgrim model, um, if you look at the history of England and the United States, of taking the largest dissenters, taking the evangelicals who are most fervent towards spreading their Christianity and exporting them um, and sending them, uh, sending them abroad where they can practice this evangelical version of their faith in ways that are less disturbing to the Chinese mainland and in ways that may actually help to strengthen some of these international ties. Um, as they develop these Christian networks abroad that could then be uh, used to take advantage of for issues of trade and for diplomacy and these kind of things. And so uh, it's very much a situation that's up in the air, and there are several different directions that this phenomenon may take, um, which could have very, very large consequences, both for Africa and for China as well. I take a slightly nuanced view on that. On the one hand, there is precedent for the Chinese either inviting, encouraging, or actually expelling people that they consider who are problems. After the Tiananmen uh, Square massacre incident, uh, you know, the, the a lot of the pro-democracy uh, activists were, were actually shuttled out and encouraged to go to Harvard and to go to these places because once they were abroad, they were nowhere near as effective. 
And so they just wanted them out of the uh, out of China. So I can see in this case of religious people who are potentially you causing problems, they say, okay, go abroad and then your power is diluted and you can't do anything. On the other hand, I'm skeptical because that they would be in any official capacity only because then um, they're not necessarily towing the party line and China likes conformity in that respect. So again, this is a really complicated issue. I think you've brought up some really interesting points on there's some contradictions that are going on here, layer upon layer of irony as well. Uh, everybody, the article is How Africa is Converting China. You can find it on this website called unheard.com, U-N-H-E-R-D. So this idea, again, you, you were explaining to me this new website, it's, it's out of the UK. Uh, unheard is, there's a pun there. Walk us through what the pun is. Absolutely. And so uh, the website, as you mentioned, is unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D. And so the pun there is that it's a website that both gives voices to unheard ideas, H-E-A-R-D, ideas that are not necessarily reflected in mainstream media or uh, dialogue and whatnot, but it's also H-E-R-D in the sense of not following the herd, not following the standard line of whatever it's, it's these cute. ideas may be. Very it's cute. quite cute. From a branding point of view, that they deserve kudos on that one. I, I thought that was great. Uh, Dr. Christopher Rhodes is a lecturer in social sciences at Boston University's College of General Studies. Uh, he focuses on the role of identity politics or identity in politics with a focus on religion and does a lot of research and work in East Africa. And we're just very excited about his article because it got us really thinking. First time in 10 years we've hit a subject like this. And so we're just really excited. And I hope that uh, you continue to explore this China-Africa relationship in ways that uh, so far no one else as far as we've seen has, has, has delved into this. Are you on social media by any chance if, every, if anybody wants to follow what you're reading and writing or if they want to get in touch with you? Well, absolutely. Um, I'm definitely on social media. Um, you can look me up on Facebook. Um, my name is Christopher Edward Rhodes. Um, you can look me up. I also have a website that I founded myself. Uh, it's called politicalreligions.com. And so I occasionally post articles there that I either write myself or articles that I've sourced from other sites like Unheard. Um, and so people can definitely contact me through either of those. And um, it's been such a pleasure uh, to be able to share this really important story with you. Um, like you said, uh, the conversation is often focused on the effects of China on Africa. And what I really want uh, to emphasize, in addition to all the talk about how this is going to affect China and whatnot, is that this is really an example of African agency here where uh, the African churches and whatnot are really taking the lead in reaching out to these Chinese workers, these Chinese officials, attempting to convert them, um, drawing a little bit upon, you know, some of the ideas that have been developed in the American context, you know, in America, that was this idea that came about in the 80s of Asians uh, immigrating to Americans and becoming, you know, kind of the model minority. And so now you see in uh, Africa, this idea of, Chinese in particular becoming the model parishioners, um, these people who are going to be very hardworking, going to be very enthusiastic about spreading their newfound faith to their countrymen and women um, in abroad and back home in China, so on and so forth. Um, and I, the African churches and various religious actors are being very strategic and very intentional and are showing that this relationship between China and Africa is not just a one-way thing. Um, but it's, it's very dynamic, and both of these regions are really affecting each other in very, very profound ways. And I think this is a really important and really interesting example of that.
It is. Well, you've just got my head thinking now in so many, I mean, there, there's so many layers to this. It's absolutely fascinating. Uh, everybody, you should check out the article uh, and check out, to keep on top of what uh, Christopher's doing in his research. Uh, and we thank you again for joining us uh, on Early Morning in Boston. We appreciate your time. Uh, thank you very much. Um, it was such a pleasure. Kobus, when we talk about the Belt and Road and when the Chinese talk about the Belt and Road, it's usually, in fact, it's only in the context of economics and politics. Stuff is leaving countries in Africa, Central Asia, coming into China, and then stuff is coming out of China and then going into back into those countries to be sold again. There's a political dimension to it, which we have explored ad nauseum on our show. But the Chinese never, ever talk about the cultural part of it beyond the propaganda things that they talk about with, you know, spreading Chinese culture around the world through Confucius Institutes, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but this is so interesting because I'm not so sure that the Chinese banked on ideas coming back into the country and participating in that loop. They always just thought it would be stuff and maybe the export of Chinese political power. So this is going to be really interesting for a country like China at the stage that it's in right now. Can it control the spread of ideas as effectively as it can control the economics of it or as it tries to control it. Now, a lot of people underestimated the Chinese in their ability to control the internet. There are lots of great quotes of Bill Clinton saying that controlling the internet is like nailing jello to a wall or uh, Rupert Murdoch saying that you know satellite dishes would be the end of Chinese information control. Well, both of them are wrong. So I don't necessarily want to underestimate the Chinese ability to control these kinds of things, but it is going to present them challenges, as Christopher pointed out in his article, which was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting how, you know, when, when the Trump administration started pulling out of trade um, trade treaties, uh, you know, Xi Jinping made a point of of trying to position China as this champion of of openness and multilateralism and you know n you know non nationalism. Um, and you, you know, if you read if you read uh, the official documents relating to the Belt and Road, there's always a section on people to people exchange. Um, you know, and it's like, yeah, well, you know, if you have if you have openness and you have people to people exchange, then things get exchanged, right? Kind of, it's 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 going to be fascinating, really fascinating to see how China deals with the, the kind of influx of all of these ideas. And, you know, I think I think African Christianity is only one of them. You know, there's so many different cultures that's being con directly connected to the heart of China through the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, you know, Africa's one, but you're also talking about Central Asia, Southeast Asia, Europe, you know, it's, it's going to be amazing to see what kind of social impacts all of these have. We didn't have time to get into it, and it's something that I would have liked to have raised with Christopher, but it's also the role of U.S. evangelicals who in East Africa, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, but also up towards the Sudans and into Ethiopia are very, very strong. And there are deep, deep relationships that go there. So this might be another place where we see an overlap between U.S. and Chinese cultural interests that are there. Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States himself, an evangelical, when he goes to East Africa, and he's been there before, uh, is very well received because of his, of his evangelism. So I think this is something very interesting to watch how if more Chinese do participate in these churches, the U.S. is already actively engaged in this part of 
uh, of this part of Africa in the evangelical community, that watching that dynamic play out as well, particularly if Christopher's right and Chinese are going back home because the United States and certainly in the religious right could see this as an opportunity to disrupt uh, certain parts of Chinese society as well, because they have been supporting underground churches and trying to move that movement along. So, ooh, that yeah, and just it, it, this is one of those topics that really threw me for a curve. I didn't know what we were going to get on this one, Cobus, and it, it really upsets again everything we talked about colonialism, and we've talked about who's influencing who, and it is really refreshing to see that this is more of a bilateral, cultural, influential relationship rather than just one side uh, influencing the other. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's, and also to see, you know, how, how this kind of influence on in real life, how complicated that influence is, you know, the idea of like, oh, we're taking over new ideas, we're taking, you know, we, we finding new ways of doing things. That's, that's fine. You know, if, if, you know, from a bird's eye view on the ground, that, that those changes are a lot more complicated. Gets a lot more complicated. Well, that is all we've got for this edition of the show, but we continue our show in lots of different ways on our various social media platforms, also via email. Uh, we get emails now almost every day, and I am turning them around as fast as I can. Uh, but if you want to reach out to Cobus and myself, eric at chinaafricaproject.com or Cobus, C-O-U-B-U-S, C-O-B-U-S, that's right, I got it right. Uh, you think I would know that by heart by now? Uh, Cobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Uh, it's a great way just to interact with you. If you have questions, if you have any comments or thoughts and you're not necessarily comfortable posting them up on social media, uh, please do send it to us. Also, if you're in China behind the Great Firewall and posting publicly is not always something that can be done or you can't engage in uh, Western social media platforms, we would love to hear from you and uh, to share your thoughts and your and your ideas with us. Uh, so, you know, let us know, email us, or of course, if you want to sign up for our newsletter, that's another great way to stay in touch with us. Just go to our website. There's a QR code right there. Every Monday we send it out. Cobus and I spend the weekends kind of selecting the best stories of the week, and it's a fantastic newsletter, a great way to stay on top of the week's best China-Africa stories. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Orlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.